Why can't there be beginnings without endings? Or more specifically, why can't there be the joy of new beginnings without the pain of endings? We're at the beginning of a new year, and this weekend has brought new beginnings with the joy for many of our St Barnabas family sharing in the marriage yesterday of our youth worker, Catherine, and her fiancé, Sammy. It's a thoroughly modern marriage. He's taken her surname, Mr and Mrs Fee. But we're also sharing in the sadness of having to commend to God's keeping tomorrow our dear Janet Hall, much-loved member of this parish and of this congregation uh, and for so many years. And, of course, we remember Reg so well as well. So beginnings and endings seem to just come together. As the Book of Common Prayer says, in the midst of life, we are in death. Our Bible readings today, too, speak of both endings and new beginnings. In this third week of Epiphany, we start now following through the Gospel of Matthew in earnest for much of this year. And we may think, well, we know the story, and we do. But of course, since last we focused on this Gospel three years ago, the world has changed, maybe too much for some. And we have changed Maybe too much for some. And so we look for God to speak to us afresh through God's word. Firstly, Isaiah 9, part of which we last heard at Advent and Christmas. Isaiah prophesied to the northernmost parts of the land of Israel, those which are bordering other lands and so vulnerable to attack even today. And Isaiah says, even though they have known oppression by the mighty Assyrian Empire, the superpower of the day, yet they will know in the future God-given glory, light and joy. I love that the word glory in Hebrew means weight, kavoth, weight, literally. Uh, some of you may know C.S. Lewis's great essay, The Weight of Glory, and it's, it's worth looking up. But it's like saying, Isaiah says, that though the people of Israel have been in contempt and been taken lightly and regarded as of lightweights in the context of empire, yet they will be finally taken seriously and accorded due weight and given significance and importance by God, who looks, of course, not on outward appearances, but on the heart and delights to lift up those bowed down and to rescue the oppressed. Then Matthew, as so often in his gospel, takes up Isaiah's prophecy from the Hebrew scriptures and sees its fulfillment in the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. And as Matthew in these opening chapters sets the scene for Jesus' ministry, notice that this new beginning of Jesus is not without painful endings too, because we hear that Jesus acts only when he heard that John the Baptist had been arrested. So here already we hear of the cost to John of his fearless ministry of calling for a return to the righteousness of God and a hint too of the opposition that Jesus will face in his ministry. Next we read that Jesus withdraws to Galilee but not to Nazareth, his hometown, which was then a fairly small, out-of-the-way, backwater sort of place. 
Can anything good come out of Nazareth, as Nathaniel put it? Rather, Jesus bases himself at Capernaum, a fishing town strategically placed right at the top of the Sea of Galilee, virtually on the seashore, but also a crossroads on the international trade route, running down from Syria, down the Sea of Galilee, and then down into Egypt. And it was right on the border between the jurisdictions of Herod and Philip. And so this is indeed a fertile fishing ground in more ways than one. This Galilee of the Gentiles, as Matthew puts it, using the Greek version of Isaiah's Hebrew. Matthew is quite possibly writing his gospel for the church at Antioch in Syria, well known to us from the book of Acts. It was a church made up of Christians from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. So Matthew is concerned to show that Jesus is ministering both to his own Jewish people, but also to those from Gentile background in Galilee. I've been able to visit Capernaum a couple of times now, and there's still much archaeological evidence of its importance in ancient and biblical times. There's the remains of a Jewish synagogue, and there are excavations of what is strongly thought to have been Simon Peter's house, over which have been built over the centuries church after church after church. And now there's a modern church with a glass floor, and you can look right down uh, to the excavations below. And yes, you can still see fishing boats out there on that lake. So it's from here that Jesus launches his new beginning, his ministry announcing the reign of God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And Jesus' focus in that word repent seems to be on that literal meaning of metanoia, turn around, turn your life around, be willing for a change of direction. Open your eyes to a new vision of the reign of God. Matthew's shorthand, which we'll hear time and time again in his gospel for this, is the kingdom of heaven. It's his respectful, Jewish, understated way of naming the realm of God. So Jesus is seeking those who will join him in this new God-centered vision. It's a community who will share his mission to call people back to God's ways. So he's out there, as we might have been in January, strolling along the beach, that liminal place, that threshold place between sea and land. And naturally enough comes across fishermen whom he will call no longer to catch fish, but to call people into the net, or we might say today into the networks of the reign of God. I'm wondering whom Jesus might call if he came in to our town today. Perhaps those who enjoy networking in the cafes and the pubs and on the riverside, sitting on the banks there of the Avon. Last week, you may recall that we heard about the calling of those first disciples in John's Gospel. But there it seemed a much more gradual discerning of Jesus' call and of who Jesus was. There was a bit of weaning off. John the Baptist, and checking out Jesus over several days. But here in Matthew, as in Mark's gospel, it all happens immediately, just like that. They left their nets and boat and followed Jesus. Did you notice, too, there's another ending? James and John, we're told, left their father 
as well as their boat. And we're not told about how their father Zebedee felt about that, losing his sons, his future security, nor about how their mother felt, although she will pop up again later in the gospel when she tries to put in a good word with Jesus for her boys. But that's another story. Sometimes we are called to let those we love make new beginnings without trying to control how it all turns out for them or for us. And did you notice in Jesus' call to his first four disciples the slight lack of a job description, employer expectations, holidays, remuneration? Did they have any idea of what they were getting into? Probably not. And yet Matthew tells us Jesus goes on to teach in their synagogues, proclaim the good news of the kingdom, cure every disease and sickness among the people. And no doubt those disciples looked on absolutely goggle-eyed and learned and then gradually began to do the same. New beginnings, a few endings as well. What about us at this time of year of new beginnings? And perhaps not a few threatened, nasty endings going around our world at present. Came across some words yesterday by an American activist, Howard Zinn. And he said, to be hopeful in difficult times is not just foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. And what we choose to emphasise in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, when people have behaved magnificently, that gives us the energy to act and at least the possibility of sending the spinning top of a world in a different direction. I read the story of an older Afro-American woman whose 16-year-old grandson was murdered, and she attended the trial of his young teenage murderers. And she said what helped her most during that trial was that another woman came over and let her lean on her shoulder. And about a year later, she started coming to the courthouse to do the same for others, to be a shoulder to lean on. And she said, I just started letting anyone lean on me who needed it. All those young people being sent to prison, all this grief and violence, those judges seeming like throwing people away like they're not even human, people shooting each other, hurting each other like they don't even care. There's a lot of pain. So I decided that I was supposed to be here to catch some of the stones that people throw at each other. A stone catcher. Some of us may be called to be stone catchers. Some of us may be called to be a shoulder to lean on. Perhaps Jesus on the cross was a stone catcher for us. Perhaps Jesus, whose yoke is easy, is yoked to us as a shoulder to lean on. 
May we hear Jesus call to us afresh today, come, follow me. And where he calls, let us follow him together. Amen.